Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for the Sunburnt Series. Dr. Peter Kapsner is joining me as usual, and I can't think of a more appropriate day for Sunburnt Series. A, it's hot out, and B, we're going to be heading to the beach today, Peter. Yeah, so we're going to need the sunblock. We are. This yep. exciting book right I here. I wear sunblock about. two million. <laughs> I know. Seriously, I'm, I'm, I do not go out in the sun, but we are going to go out in the sun today for the sake of this discussion because we are going to be talking a little bit about the sea today and the theology of home with Noelle Maring. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it's, it's a, kind of an interesting metaphor that she's going to take us into, but it's really going to get us into um, remembering and reminding ourselves of how important uh, just some long-term values are, things like home and family and relationships. And we, we attend to so many different things in life, but the real substance of life is found in these places. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too. I think we'll let her do a job of explaining it because... We're looking at each other like, well, I think we should get Noel on like sooner than later, right? <laughs> That's always the case. That's always the case. Always the case indeed. Yeah. Uh, Noel is a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's the author of Awake, Not Woke and Theology of Home. This is the third edition in that series. Noel, nice to have you back on. Great to be with you, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, we love it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the theology of home, just as maybe paint some broad brushstrokes. Sure, yeah. So this is, as you said, a third in uh, book series. The first book, Theology of Home book, we've had that three in three years, so um, we've been busy. But um, the first one was kind of, uh, they're all sort of with this idea that home is, it represents something that we all universally long for. You know, there's elements of belonging, of safety, of relationship, of being valued for just who you are rather than what you can do and what you can achieve in the world. Um, you know, but there's a hiddenness to home. And I think that hiddenness is part of what makes it so beautiful that it's not something for which we get a paycheck or applause or glorified in the, by the world or, you know, a ton of human respect. But, you know, it, oftentimes it's those hidden things that are the things that actually we realize that, you know, are the most important things in our life. Um, you know, when people are on their deathbed, they want to be with their family. They want the people to be holding their hands that, you know, knew them the best and most intimately in those relationships and, you know, not their boss. <laughs> um, but there's, so the, I think we're trying to react to and respond to decades of cultural um, sort of, I think, a propaganda effort um, to denigrate the importance of what happens in the home, um, that to make women feel that, you know, their work in the home is sort of beneath them that they're kind of, you know, it can be reserved for someone who can't really make it in the real world and, um, you know, that it's a less than thing to do and way to spend your time and sort of a waste. And I, and I think that that's been a message that's been really uh, successful. You know, it's hard to have grown, grown up, even, you know, in a Christian family and not have absorbed that to some degree. Um, and how did they do it? You know, it was there's a philosophical per- campaign, but, you know, it, it was really seeded through cultural messaging, through television shows, through media, through our movies, um, you know, magazines, women's magazines were notoriously um, seeding radical feminist messages throughout. 
Uh, and so, so we kind of looked at all of this and thought, you know, what if we, we had a counter message that was also sort of in that same magazine-like fashion, beautiful, you know, mm-hmm. that there are beautiful photography of homes of fathers being, you know, holding a baby and mothers caring for their children and husbands and wives who love each other and pregnant women and, you know, all these beautiful things you don't happen to see in the, you know, the Cosmo type environment, but, um, but are, you know, so that people could see themselves reflected in, in this sort of thing. Um, so it's filled with beautiful photography. They're each filled with sort of meditations and um, stories and uh, metaphors and um, uh, inspiration, I think. That, and, uh, and also some practical stuff about, you know, how do we, you know, how, how do we kind of get the proper mindset where we can make our homes fruitful and beautiful and, and happy. Um, so, yeah, so this recent one is called The Theology Poem at the Sea, and it's, um, you know, as it says, it's, it uses water, sea, lakes, oceans as a, this, you know, really rich metaphor. It, it was fun writing it because we realized there's so much written about the sea and the ocean, even literature, mythology, and I think for good reason because, you know, the ocean in particular is just such a powerful metaphor from, you know, the uh, just recreation, you know, children barefoot and straw-brimmed hats and stripes and all these things. To, you know, great adventure, to danger, to mystery, to the hidden, you know, hidden things deep in the dark recesses of the sea. Um, And a lot of that can connect to, you know, the deepest meanings of life, right? Like mystery, we seek out mystery, we seek out adventure. We we also want simple recreation. Um, And even that word recreation, recreation, you know, there's something really life-giving about water in itself, literally, but also metaphorically that um, you know, something that's life-giving is an essential is also going to be something that we um, are compelled by, that we're drawn to, that we want in our lives and, and to pull into our homes, too. Um, so maybe it's getting a little esoteric, but uh, it wound up being a really fun book to write, and I think it turned out well. Yeah, well, no, you haven't lost us at all. Uh, Noelle Merring is our guest, and she wrote this book with Carrie Gress. This is a third installment in their Theology of Home and it's at the sea. And I know there's themes not only of home in this book, of course, but also womanhood is woven throughout, which is great. And so in this uh, discussion of the sea, I have a couple questions. One's like, uh, Noel, why do we often associate maritime language with the feminine? Yeah, no, that was a really fun thing to look into. Um I think that there is like ancient mythology oftentimes thinks of the ocean as being, you know, the the great mother. (laughs) And there's a philosopher um, named Peter Kreeft, um, who is just a wonderful whimsical writer. And he did this um, sort of meditation on why he, trying to understand why he loves the sea so much. Um, And and he, you know, he talks about it as a mother that you can kind of like a child, you become almost childlike when you come to the sea. Even if you're 60 years old, you know, you come and you just start to play. And there's that element of, um, of womanliness, I think, in that, but also that the sea can contains things, you know, that the sea is also mysterious. And, you know, there's a cliche that women are very confusing for good reason, because our brains go in a million different directions at all the times, and we are emotionally complex, can be emotionally complex. Uh, But even with that, you know, there's a way in which we can harness all of that to be not something that is, you know, part of a, a divisive thing, but also a depth you know, that we can contain um, real layers that, uh, you know, are meant to be ways in which we can, um, you know, deepen our, our prayer life and contain people and the, our loved ones in our hearts and in our heads and in our prayer. Um, that's very womanly, you know, that, uh, and, and that, that that's supposed to be something that is a source of relationship, not a source of division, as I think that cliche of, I can't understand women can, you know, point to. 
Um, because there's also that other part, whereas if we're not kind of taking that sort of emotional depth and all of that and making it some, something that through which we love people, it can become something that's self-serving or something manipulative or, um, you know, uh, that we can really grow kind of tough in a certain way. Um, and I think that that's happened in a, in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, because of how much women have been told that their, their, um, their, the point of their lives is to achieve power. Uh, when we know truly the point of every Christian life is to serve. You know, how can I serve? First God, first and, and others, um, and particularly my family. Um, but when we, we when we shift that goal, everything everything that's beautiful, I think, about womanhood can become kind of dangerous. You know, and that's a, another way that it's a metaphor. The sea is a metaphor um, because the sea, as we know, it can be light and playful and fun, but it also can be terrifying. You know? um, and so one of the things we really played with too is you know. Every everyone who is a smart, you know, surfer or a, a sailor or a ship captain, they'll always say, you know, you can't be arrogant when you're on the sea. You have to. You, they, they'll speak with a sort of intimacy of knowledge about the nature of the sea and a clear recognition of our inability to control it. Um, and you know, the sea can spit you out, slam you against a jagged reef, or you know, and, and get, catch you in a storm. Um, we have to respect that there's, there's a nature to the ocean, that there's patterns and cycles, elements to consider, and seasons to anticipate. Uh, and that can lead to harmonious you know, rather than, uh, you know, peril, perilous experience with the sea. Um, so we see this really clearly with nature, but we, decades of social engineering has led us to have blind spots when it comes to applying that sort of reverence and respect for our human nature. And I think in particular for women that we really, you know, we're, you know, we're seeing the extremes of it now with the transgender movement, but we really have destabilize any concept that we have a nature too that we have to respect you know that our bodies are meaningful um you know that and that that and that meaning that bodily meaning incarnate incarnate you know as incarnational people gives us a sign to how to live and points to the contours and content of our humanity and our happiness you know that we're not just simply putty that we can manipulate according to some sort of progressive vision but but actually, we have to live in harmony with ourselves, too, who God made us to be, who, who, that we are created beings. And then that creation is something that we have to respect as well. Mm. Now, while you were talking to just about um, in that harmony, there may be some of the disharmony that came is when women began to be told that they should try to achieve power in this world. Were there certain times in history, maybe in the 70s or 80s, certain moments that really represented that change in thinking in terms of what women should be up to in life? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was, uh, you know, there was a real effort, particularly in the '60s, I think, to um, and to rub raw the sores of discontent between women and men. You know, I think there was a sort of a sinister effort to kind of exploit a burgeoning feminist movement and use it in ways that can, you know, just create more division in society. Um, and so, you know, the the irony is that, you know, really, what happens is that we start to think of women as having. Um, we're dysfunctional men, that our bodies are kind of working against us, that our fertility is a problem, that, you know, that if, if we're not able to walk away from a casual sex engagement, then by getting rid of a baby, you know, you know, through the means of abortion, that somehow um, we're, we're going to be oppressed and less powerful. Um, and so what it does is really makes a woman deny her own body, deny that her body points to some sort of vulnerability that is a sign that we actually belong to each other, that human beings are supposed to care for each other. We're not supposed to walk through the world just being able to do what we will and walk away from, you know, um, another person if we have uh, if we have created a child with them. So that's one example. But, you know, I think there's a real reason why abortion is kind of the, the, the crux of the feminist movement. 
um, because it is the deepest, I think, most wounding and most grave kind of uh, ways to kind of, uh, uh, excuse me, corrupt, corrupt the nature of what the woman is, who's called, whose body points to nurturing the life inside her. And instead, she decides that the key part of her liberation is to be able to rupture that life inside her. Hmm. Um, so it's been in various ways, but I think that, that there's a, a way in which it's fundamentally a denial of our, of our very bodies um, and what our bodies point to about who we are. Mm-hmm. Our guest is Nicole Merring, and she's written a book called At the Sea. It's her third installment of her Theology of Home. And At the Sea pulls out the rich connections between the sea and mystery, recreation, yearning, and joyful reunions. Great topic for our Sunburnt series. We'll take a short break, and Peter and I will be right back with uh, Noel in just a minute. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. Thank you for being with us today. So glad to have uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner with me in our Sunburn series. It is that time of the week, and we are talking to Nicole Maring. She's written her third installment of her Theology of Home books. She did that with Carrie Gress, and the one that we're discussing is called At the Sea. And Peter, let me ask you this. When you uh, think of all the trinkets in your home, do you have anything in your house like a seashell or something you picked up on a beach somewhere or something from... Uh, your time at an ocean. We absolutely have. We have a little whalebone of all things. A wash, whalebone washed up on the shores outside of St. Andrews in Scotland. So we have a little a little whalebone from that experience. So it was just washed up on shore. You didn't actually well, go get it yourself. Yeah, I didn't like dive and find it or anything <laughs> like that. No, no, well, no, no. I was thinking get it out of the whale. That's well, what I would have done. Yeah. No, clearly I would have been way more jeopardy than the whale in that situation. So yeah, I, I decided to wait till it was dead to, to collect its bone. <laughs> <laughs> Probably smart. All right, uh, during the break, uh, Rosie asked a great question, and I thought, well, I'll just have Rosie ask the question because it probably will make more sense. Rosie, go ahead. Noel, thank you so much for covering this topic. It's just so beautiful, and it, it has needed eyes for a long time. Can you speak to, um, I have a lot of relationships with uh, women that are what I guess would be considered millennials um, in their late 20s, early 30s. And they do have these degrees and they, they are capable of so much and they are finding, intellectually they're capable of so much, but they are finding as they're having children that economically they um, need to stay in the workplace even though their heart is to, um, uh, they do have a longing to provide a, a rich home environment. Yeah, no, I think that that's really complicated. Um, you know, in some ways we've just set up our society that it, you know, oftentimes where we live, it's, we, you kind of need two incomes, you know, that that's, we've sort of made that the norm to the point where now it does feel really hard and um, challenging to kind of um, do something different. Um, I know when we were young and married, uh, you know, we, we shared a car, we had a tiny apartment. I, you know, so I would walk the baby in a stroller and try, um, you know, we lived very modestly. Um, and, and, but those were sweet days when I think about them. Uh, you know, I think that there's not a really um, there's not a, a strict recipe for how every woman has to live. Like I would never say, you know, 
I'm, you know, I know very intellectual women and um, who have PhDs and women who my, my co-author, Carrie Gress, she got a PhD while she was, I think, nursing a baby. And, um, you know, women can be capable of incredible things. Um, So I guess what I would say to them is, you know, there's a lot of creative ways to kind of try to make things work. A lot of people are moving out of the cities into more rural areas, um, maybe moving by family. So at least you have some family support if you, if you are working, um, you know, balancing time with your husband so that, you know, you're not having to put a child in daycare, I think is um, something that can, you know, feel challenging, but, but it, it's more accessible, I think, than we, we sometimes assume. Sometimes we are so conf- like seeing the roadblocks and not seeing, you know, opportunities if we are really determined to make something happen. So, um, or having grandma watch, you know, I think that's, well, it can be a beautiful thing if if a grandmother is is, is able and up for that. Um, but yeah, I think it is challenging. And really resist though is the idea that women feel like a pressure. I think to feel that they their identity, their significance is fostered through um, their achievements out in the world. You know that can be something that's wonderful and feels and feels affirming. Um, but that's not the the core of uh, of our identity. Nor are we going to be. Um, you know, less valuable if we devote all of our time to to our family. So I think that that's the thing that I react against. And I oftentimes talk to women who, you know, they got so far in their career um, and then, you know, they're, they're turning 40 and they you know, they re- wish that they had started earlier, you know, because now it's very hard, can be very hard to get pregnant. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to them because then I see, you know, hear the, the regret that they ex- express. And, and, I ju- and I just really think that there's been a lot of hoodwinking of women mm. to kind of, um, you know, discourage them from things that they they kind of really want actually do want um and and that's confusing it's confusing to live in a time of ideology because there's so much messaging you know that can be counter to our 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 flourishing um that can but it's also very compelling and so it's it's hard to quiet all those voices and think what do i really desire and how how do i best achieve that and it can look different for different women you know certainly but striving to see through the propaganda i think is really key I feel like there's an invitation for women and for men in general to support a different ideology for these women and men who are trying to do something different. Those of us who have come through our child rearing years, maybe have seen both sides of the fence. It's it's a great opportunity invitation for us to affirm them that they don't have to go that way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, 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 I love that you pointed out men and women because, you know, I, I had some section and I think it was the first theology of homebook. Uh, yeah, a chapter about um, about husband, how important husbands' uh, approach to home is, how vital that is. You know that I think that there's, in some ways, there's you know if the husband is prioritizing his career, you know, and, and certainly there's an urgency where if you've got a career and you've got your boss telling you you've got to go to these meetings, you know, you do in some in some practical ways have to prioritize that. Um, but but there's a grander way in which we can see that even um, as wives and, and as men as husbands that it's still at the service of our family. You know, I'm doing this, my career is for the sake of my family. My family is not just kind of where I go to kind of unwind at the end of the day and, you know, watch a football game or something, but not that there's anything wrong with that, but but rather that this is the crux of my day. You know, I, 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 my husband, when he comes home, you know, he made a real shift at one point um, in it, because family life is, you know, we have six children. And so when everyone was little, it could be really intense and um, com- um, busy and loud and, um, lot needed needing more hands uh, to help us, and he would come home and say to himself, "This now." And he didn't. He heard this from another good father. But he would say, "This is show. Now it's showtime. Like this is where the rubber meets the meets the road." And so he would walk in the door and just say, "You know, what can I do? How can I help? What, what do you need?" And 
you know, and that was an attitude shift that was so helpful for him. And for myself, I remember I used to have a bad attitude where he'd come home and I'd, I'd want to give him a litany of my complaints one day. This child did this, and then I had to do this, and then the dinner burned, and then this. You know, and then I, I thought one, at one point, what does that feel like for him coming into the home and hearing an upset, complaining wife? You know, how is that helping him? That's not. It's actually probably really depleting and demoralizing for him to hear. And so I think what ways we can frame things that can really create such a more, or more beautiful and happy home life. And there's subtle things, but we have to talk about them. Um, and if women are constantly hearing this message that their work is so brutal and it's no applause and they should be doing something more with their lives, well, that's going to be a woman who is going to be that complaining woman at the end of the day you know, that, that, that I was for, for those years. And so, um, and so I think these messages, they do far more to our psyches than we even realize. Um, and, and, and seeing, you know, reframing home, and this is, a, this is an opportunity to serve. And that is the crux of our, our, of our Christian life is we should be people who are leading in, in love, you know, to serve the people around us. Um, and, by, and by way of doing that, we are serving our Lord. Um, but but it, it has to be talked about. It has to be promoted. It needs to be said clearly, I think. Um, because these things are, are can get confusing really quickly. If you are in a situation where um, you are at home as a as a woman, and then the per- the the husband is working outside of the home, um, sometimes it's tough to just leave the work behind as you're coming back into the home. Are there just some simple practices of the reengagement at the end of a day that both husband and wife can do to to not just set it up? along the lines of what you're describing, where maybe there's a lot of complaining or dumping or giving over, or I don't have any bandwidth left on either side of it, right? Are there simple things people can do? Sure. I mean, it's going to be person-specific, but I, I, you know, I've heard of men who have very intense jobs saying, you know, on the way home, I stop at, I stop by my local church, and I just go and have 10 minutes of silent time to pray and to kind of, you know, recenter myself. So you're not, you know, so that we are, we're not just moving from one intensity to, you know, walking to another intensity that it is, we have to take care of those types of things. You know, we can't expect, we're not machines or robots. You can just, you know, function at an intense level all the time. Um, so, so you know, and other men might do something else. Perhaps it's, you know, a long drive where you listen to some beautiful music or, you know, podcast or just have silence or something. I think that those transitions can be really crucial and really important. And then I think the husband and wife talking to each other about, you know, Maybe if the husband is struggling that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking to, I really need to some time to unwind tonight or, and then how can they do that together? You know, how can we start associating each other in our marriage as, you know, this is a, my safe, my pillow where I can, you know, rest my head and it's a welcoming, warm environment or, or this is who I have fun with. You know, my husband and I try to have a kind of a mantra of make your marriage fun, you know, <laughs> that the person you have fun with, you're really drawn to be with that person. And so we try to really prioritize that we have fun with each other, you know. Um, and whatever, you know, so whatever that looks like, either whether it be date nights or just um, putting kids to bed and then, you know, having a tea or a glass of wine or something at the end of the day and talking. And um, But, you know, there has to be things that are, you know, the people, it's going to be couple specific, but I think those things should not be considered fluff of life. I think they're actually things that we really need to be prioritizing. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our talk with no- Noelle Maring. She's written the third installment of her book, Theology of Home. It's called At the Sea, and I, this is a gorgeous book. I don't think I think this sits on the coffee table. This doesn't go on the bookshelf. It's very, very pretty, beautiful photography. And we'll be back. Uh, Dr. Uh, Peter Kapsner and I are doing our Sunburnt series, and we're enjoying Noelle and her book, At the Sea. We'll be right back. 
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back to the show. If you just joined us, it's Dr. Peter Kapsner and I. We're continuing our Sunburnt series, which is what we do in the summer, just a variety of topics, things to talk about. And today we're talking uh, to Noelle Noel Maring. This is her third installment of her Theology of Home series that she's been doing with uh, Carrie Gress. And they turn in this book, it's called At the Sea. They turn their attention to the role of the sea in our memories and our imaginations and it draws from literature and scripture, and it just pulls out these all these rich connections. Noel, I would love for you to talk about Christ and his many encounters with water in the Gospels. Sure. Well, certainly, a woman at the well comes to mind immediately. Um, you know, the baptism, the Jordan. Um, you know, he even speaks about. Uh, well, well, even in the Old Testament, the Proverbs, there's a really beautiful, um, I won't remember the citation, but um, talking about um, you know, the, the, the life-giving nature of water. Um, yeah, so much. And, you know, I think that that's in, in part, you know, reflect, it's reflected in our language. And we think about how much we talk about the sea without even realizing it. You know, when we think about, um, uh, you know, words like navigate or buoy. Um, or transport, anchor, have transport, which, you know, means taking from things from port to port, um, transform. Uh, yeah. So I, so I think it's fitting that our, our Lord would so, um, would speak of it. Um, you know, and, uh, there's a beautiful quote and I can't, re- won't remember whose it is, but, uh, that a man said that the, the ocean is like God himself in the sense that I'm not, I don't mean that in a heretical way, but of course, but a metaphor for God himself in the sense that it's the mystery that surrounds us all, you know, that we are surrounded by, by mystery in our lives. And that part of, um, you know, being childlike, not childish, but childlike in our Christianity is by having sort of eyes of wonder, you know, because we're, we're, we're people who are supposed to be standing in awe of, of, of God, who God is. Um, you know, and he's given us so many gifts through, in nature just surrounding us. You know, if we um, can get off of our phones sometimes and, and we engage in the world around us, it's really, it's really glorious. And um, C.S. Lewis talks about how nature is, you know, that gives content to the word glory. And uh, um, I, I really love that. You know, it's a similar way to how romantic love gives content to, you know, to the nature of, of familial love but, um, and the, the divine familial love that we'll have as daughters and sons of, of, of a loving father. Um, but nature is, is, is similar in that way, that it really, it really gives us something to feast on our eyes on and to praise God through. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's proven to be a rich, rich metaphor for many reasons. And certainly in, in Scripture, our Lord employed it. And when Jesus and his disciples are, say, crossing the lake and there's a storm that's raging and yeah. they're, these, are, these are men who know what they're doing in a boat and they're afraid yeah. of their own lives, you see the the power and the terror that comes with the water. Um, and that certainly is a, a metaphor for so many of our our lives. And trouble is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And then, but I'm thinking if Jesus is on your boat, everything will be okay. Yeah, that's right. That that it, It's such a powerful, that's one of my favorite parts actually of Scripture is that, that scene because everyone can relate to it. You know, you know that, that that sense of fear, you know, we can feel that and something happens in our lives that really can shake us to the core or 
or um, or confront immediately our mortality or something. But um, but yeah, but but you're absolutely right that we can be tossed about with those fear and those those emotions and that anxiety, or we can look to our Lord, keep our eyes focused on our Lord, and see how He can calm things, even if they doesn't, He doesn't calm the situation or the circumstances, that He can calm our soul. Um, and there's a beautiful metaphor for prayer in that too, just even with the ocean that. You know, I have a story in the book about how when I was a child, I remember going to the ocean for the first time, and um, I just stood, and a wave smacked me on my face, and I was red and raw and went up my nose, and, you know, I got knocked on my, knocked over, and, um, you know, and, and it, it can, it, it's tumultuous in that way, but, um, but, but, but the, in, in prayer, you know, we can either be facing something that's coming at us and let it knock us over and be destabilized by it. Or we can dive under the wave. You know, that's what you learn as a child. Dive under the wave, and it, and then you'll be, you know, you'll get to the calm water. And I think our prayers like that, right? Like when things are going crazy in our lives, or stressful, or stress, or anxiety, or overwhelming us, or sadness, or grief, or what have you. That diving deep into our hearts and to be with our Lord there in our prayer, that interior life, fostering that rich interior life with Him. Um, you know, that that's the way to go. And I think that I think of that image too of diving under the waves. Um, uh, in, in my prayer life sometimes, and it, it's helpful to me. So when we think of that moment when Jesus, and I, I want to go back to that because I love this, and I think this came up on my show in the last two or three weeks, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who said it, but the fact that in the midst of a storm, and Jesus was still able to sleep. And I th- sometimes wonder, Noel, when you are in the midst of a storm, are you are you becoming an insomniac because you can't sleep? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's right. Isn't that interesting? That it that is. really is such a human reaction to anxieties that we have sleepless nights. We're restless. We're yes. tossing and turning. Um, yeah, and it's such a beautiful, you know, I, I, I should, that, that's a wonderful thing to think about. I've not made that connection with insomnia and thinking about our Lord being able to sleep. It's really, really powerful. Um I love that. That's something I think that can think, yeah. we can think more about. Yeah, I, yeah. Because when I'm in the middle of a storm or trouble, I usually am a little bit more sleepless. Or if I yeah. wake up, I can't get back to sleep, and all of a sudden, I'm I'm getting in worse trouble because my defenses are lower and my sleep is poor, and my problems are getting bigger and, <laughs> and bigger <laughs> in my own mind. Peter, you probably attest to this as well. And yet, in the midst of a of a raging storm, Jesus is down below with his head on a, on a cushion, sleeping. Drives yeah. me wild. Drives me wild. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. So, so there's been that saying, sleeping like a baby. You know, there's something really sweet about that, too, because, you know, a baby feels taken care of. A yes. baby has total trust. A baby knows that their their needs, his needs are all going to be met. You know, there's a peace there. Um, that even that is another call. I feel like I'm saying childlike a lot, but, you know, it's another way in which that sort of total trust, total abandonment to our Lord's will um, can give us that sort of peace that, you know, as you say, I mean, once we start that cycle of sleeplessness and anxiety, it feeds on itself and it snowballs upon itself. Mm. Our, our defenses are are down and our ability to kind of think clearly, we can get confused, you know, and there's sort of a chaos there that I think, it, you know, the devil really thrives on, you know, that he, he wants us kind of to be exhausted and confused and discouraged. You know, discouragement, I think, is such an opportunity for him. Um, to control kind of our, you know, take over our imaginations and our ability to trust. So, yeah, all these things are so deeply connected. Yeah, I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis that said, you can't pursue sleep, it has to pursue you. Mm. And when you have so much turmoil in your life, how can sleep pursue you when you're up fidgeting? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 
Yeah, no, that's right. Um, yeah, and sometimes when if I'm having trouble sleeping, I'll think, you know, well, maybe this is an opportunity to pray for someone. Maybe there's someone who needs prayer right, prayer right now. And that can even help, you know, has a benefit of helping to calm myself. If I do have these little lingering anxieties about something or sometimes you don't even realize you're anxious. You know, it just kind of sneaks up on you. Um, and, and sometimes that happens at the middle of the day, most of all, and you're struck by fear or something. You know, this is, these are such human experiences. But um, how wonderful that we have a Lord that can console us through that. You know, and even, and even if we're, you know, not able to pursue that sleep, because it, it's not, as you say, the, you know, the more we're staring at the clock trying to calculate how much sleep we're going to get, then the more awake we've become in some ways. Um, this, if we can change our focus to be something uh, to be on him rather than our worry or the time or the fact that we're awake, you know, then that can allow an opportunity for that sleep to come, I think. Yeah. Noel, let's look at uh, um, someone who spent a little time on the water. There's a, a guy named Noah um, in mm-hmm. his, the ark. Is that is that a symbolism of the church? Yeah, I mean, the ark is it's, it's a, a traditional symbol of the church. I mean, some churches in traditional architecture, you know, in Europe, in European churches oftentimes are, you know, they employ real um, language of, you know, maritime language, that, um, uh, you know, the nave. Um, there's, uh, you know, some, there's some that are even built. The architecture, the architecture mimics certain things about, uh, about a ship or a boat. And there's a real beautiful metaphor there, right, that we are, you know, we're not meant to just live in the ocean, obviously. That would be horrible. We have to, you know, we're go, we're, we're go, the ocean is a metaphor also for like a journey, you know, that we're going somewhere and that the ship is taking us somewhere. We're pilgrims in this world. We're not wanderers. We're just pil- we're pilgrims, meaning we have a destination, um, you know, and, and, the, and a ship can give you, there's a lot of um, analogies there for, you know, are the way that we're correct, course correcting our lives. You know, a sailor is always kind of course correcting. So there's a, there's a resolute, you know, um, art there and discipline, but there's also a suppleness to how to be an art, a good sailor. You have to be paying attention to the, the, to the changes and the things going on, things around you, your circumstances. And then you have to be nimble enough to adjust to them, adjust your sails or adjust your, court, your course. Um, and, I, and I think that that's part of wisdom, right, and prudence is that, um, you know, it's part of a life of virtue that uh, Christians are called to, to strive to live is being docile to um, the circumstances and the situations of our lives and then responding to them in ways that will be wise and prudent and, um, and, 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 do, and the best course of action for, um, for our own um, pilgrimage in this life, which is to in order to achieve um, or to be in union with him, in union with him in heaven forever. So, and to help as many people get there as possible. You know, and the church is, some, you know, there's another uh, ship image there that the church is carrying us, you know, helping to carry us through this, this pilgrimage. Um, so, yeah, it's beautiful. The, uh, you know, the, that metaphor dot scripture, it's in history, it's an art, and that ark of Noah, um, the boat of Jude, um, it's, 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 it's a rich and beautiful image. It's a the vessel image. It is. We're going to take a little break, but I've got one quick question for you. If uh, you and your husband are going to try to get a little vacation, will you gravitate to the sea? Well, we actually are fortunate enough to live in a, a beach town. Oh, okay. Um, so every <laughs> Sorry. Day, we, all, we all go to the beach. It's, yeah, it's just, we go to a beach nearby and with a bunch of families, it's great. It's a full day where kids are outside in nature all day in the sun, 
mm-hmm. being active, no one's on their phone. <laughs> it's just wonderful, and it's all free. So that's, that's, that's fantastic because Peter just bought oceanfront property in Nebraska. <laughs> I did, yeah. So there, there's some problems there. I need to discuss that with him after the break. So we'll take a little break. We'll come back more with Nicole Maring. Uh, her and Dr. Kerry Gress wrote a book uh, called At the Sea. It's uh, their third installment in their Theology of Home series, which is uh, quite lovely. It's uh, it's kind of pulls together the rich connections between the sea and uh, recreation and yearning and, and great family time and reunions and uh, the themes of home and womanhood are woven are woven throughout. So it's an amazing book and it's beautiful, gorgeous pictures. Um, definitely Google it and take a look. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Peter Kaffner and I are back with Noelle Maring. We're talking about her, her book, At the Sea. It's her third installment of her Theology of Home books. And very interesting discussion we were having just before the break about Noah. Peter, you had a great comment, a great thought. Yeah, uh, Noah, I was just thinking with Noah that there's all of this destruction that happens in the waters, but then new life emerges from that. But that also seems to happen in the Pharaoh and Moses story where the Egyptians get destroyed by the waters, but a new community is kind of birthed from the waters. There's baptism. And there just seems a lot of imagery of destruction and new creation with waters in the Bible. Yeah, that's right. And get to talk about that, it's the recreation, that, it, that there's a life-giving element that's so interesting. And even the waters of, you know, we think about the waters in the womb, you know, that, 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 that we begin our lives in our life in water. Um, yeah, so that's, that's that same thing, the same element that can destroy is also the same thing that can, you know, is life-giving. Um, you know, and that's, it's, 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 it's really quite powerful when you think about it. And I think there's a lot of rich directions you can go with that, that sort of analogy. And Noel, let me just say this, when I say this is your third installment of your Theology of Home, uh, another book that I think you started with was called Finding the Eternal in the Everyday. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. that was the subtitle, yeah, Theology of Home, Finding the Eternal in the Everyday. Mm-hmm. And then is the other one the Theology of the Home Planner? Uh, no, the second one is theology. That uh, we don't consider the planners part of the book okay. series per se. But the second one is theology of home, the spiritual art of homemaking. So the first one we're really talking about what are the elements of home, and the second one we're talking about what are the elements of a good homemaker. Like okay. How do we do this well? Yeah, I just wanted to put these in context as I talk about the third installment. I want to just let listeners know that the first two installments and what those topics were. But let's talk, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit about what you describe as the seas ability to draw our souls out to God. Yeah. Provocative. Yeah. You know, I think it, it, it can happen in so many ways for, you know, there's that play, that playful element that it turns us into such children at any age when we come, when we come to it, that we're mesmerized by it, right? That it induces in us some longing, I think, some, some desire and some sense that there's something more, um, you know, that, that we, it's easier to swim, you know, in a pool or for example, 
but 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 still, so many of us are drawn to the ocean. Well, why? And the ocean is it's colder. It's often dirtier. You know, it's harder to get to. Um, parking's awful. Um, it can be rough. We can get slapped around by the the waves. Um, and yet, still, we want that even more than a pool. I think you know, or you know, more commonly. Um, and I think that even that is uh, something about how we're drawn to adventure. We're drawn to a great engagement um, in our lives. You know that we don't want to be sort of robots or automatons. You know, just living as materialists, kind of cashing a check and um, get, get getting things uh, accomplished. But rather, that sort of mystery and struggle. You know, that, that struggle to um, to triumph. You know, in, in our Lord's victory, that we can. Um, die to ourselves and live with Him through His grace. That these they, these things are, are 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 harder, but they're they're what we actually long for, and they're the things that are going to um, really where we'll find our happiness. Um, and, and I think the ocean is you know there's that there's a there's a piece of that that it's really you know speaking to something that is a universal deep longing and and, and something that we want to. Um, that, that it, there's a reason why we have oceanfront property is the most expensive in the world and why so many cities are built around the sea. And, um, you know, and there's practical reasons too, that it's, you know, you need to bring, you need to have ports, you need to have, you know, imports and all of these things. So, um, uh, but there's, but there's also the just basics of sustenance, you know, for farming and, you know, when in, in, in older, more primitive ages, when, you know, they had to establish civilization near the water because we knew how much it was crucial to our very lively, our very life and livelihoods. When you talk about longing for beauty, I love that expression because it does make me think of the sea and the ocean. I'm not sure what the difference is, but when you get <laughs> to a, a massive, expansive body of water, and when I spent a lot of time living in San Diego area, there was a place called Sunset Cliffs where you would go to watch the sun go down, and it would be the same scenario every night. There's the sun, it's going down, it's disappeared, it's no longer out. And you would be at rapt attention watching it every night over the times you'd go down there because of the sheer beauty and majesty and it was always a very spiritual, I found my, my heart just pouring out gratitude and thankfulness to God in those moments. Because I don't think yeah, we I, ever tire of beauty. Mm. No, I think that's right. There's something inexhaustible about it, right? We don't, we don't say, okay, that's enough. You know, I don't need to go back there. I don't need to see this, another sunset. I've, it's not like watching the same movie over and over again. You know, that, that, that's exactly right. That you're, you're, in some ways, it's the same. In other ways, it's utterly inexhaustible. And in that inexhaustibility, we are mesmerized. Um, and there's something about the nature, I think, of um, because, you know, beauty, God is beauty. Um, and so, so there is a reason why it feels so spiritual. You know, surfers often talk about how spiritual, you know, that in very spiritual language, their, you know, their hobby of serving. It's not where it's not just a mere hobby to them, but somehow it's become this spiritual experience. Um, you know, and I think what they're looking for is that God is inside everything that is beautiful. And he's inside all of our longing. So even if we're not identifying him, you know, there's something that he's calling us to, um, you know. And so I always think that people who love the sea, you know, I pray for them to, to, to love our Lord because, you know, that, 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 that what they're loving is really a reflection of him. It's not, it's not the thing itself. And if we stop there, if we stop at nature and don't see the supernatural, we're sort of we're limiting something and we're kind of denying the essential nature of what the thing is, right? That this is not just an ocean. This is creation this is and that means there's a creator and he is who we are the, the ocean is pointing us to and pointing us to quite beautifully 
Uh, you said you had six kids and um, you're, you're near the water. Do you spend some time parenting them in these ways of beauty? I just, I think so often we focus so much on studying the word together as families and, and understandably so, but do you parent them in beauty in these ways? Yeah, we try to. Um, we, so uh, we've ne- we never take our kids, for example, to like amusement parks. My husband, that's just kind of been an, un- an unspoken rule. Although, well, we've talked about it, but it's not, a, we've never said this is a rule. Um, but one of uh, the things he said early on, he's like, I really want the kids to be able to have simple delights, you know, that, um, that, 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 that it's not artificial or kind of this like contrived experience, but rather um, for them to be able to have a simple delight. Because I think sometimes if we're spending too much time watching TV or surfing social media or what have you, we become real, really passive agents in our own lives. And we become bored of everything, you know, that there's, we need some, you know, bells and whistles to really engage our minds and our hearts and our eyes. And it seems like we're adding more to into our into our brain, but really, I think we're depleting our depleting our um, our minds and our hearts, and our ability to see and de- delight in the things that we ought to be seeing and delighting in. Um, you know, there's some kind of an I- irony there. So yeah, I'm, I, th- I think it's just been through just habit. You know, that that in some ways is the best way to get your kids to learn something, right? It's just to kind of make it a natural habit, a natural part of, part of your family culture. That this is just what I've grown up doing, and this is you know what I have grown up not doing, and you know that these are just the culture that my family's created, rather than um, necessarily always just telling them, you know, <laughs> you should appreciate this or you should appreciate beauty. Just live it, you know, and, and, and the more that you live it in yourself, the more they will absorb that and mimic it. You know, kids are they just, I can always amazed by how much I see them that they've learned that we never told them to do. You know, I'll walk in and see my, see a child uh, praying at, you know, at his bedside or her bedside. And, you know, certainly we teach, helped teach them to pray and told them to pray, but We've never specifically said, you know, make a habit every night, get on your knees, you know, we'll do family prayers together, but we don't necessarily, um, you know, say, okay, now go to your room and pray privately. But we do that. And they stumble into our room and see us doing it before bed. And so they just start doing it. And it's just, you know, it's a wonderful, amazing thing to see. And and then our bad habits, of course, they absorb those. Uh, do you do you find in that too that there's maybe not uh, sort of a sense of you have a Christian life over here and you have the rest of life over there? They just it's all one big life. Yeah, I think it's really important to teach a, sort of a unity of life, right? That we're not kind of um, we don't check our Christianity at the door when we are you know with these friends or when we're out in this place or at work, and even. Even this idea, you know, I think it's easy to get sucked into the idea that I need for my job or my work to be, you know, I want to be some sort of, um, that all Christians have to be in ministry, for example, in their in their careers, which is a beautiful thing. You know, I mean, I, I feel that that's sort of what I'm doing in my work and what you're doing too. Um, but my husband, I remember at one point realizing I work a secular job, but I can still unite it to our Lord, you know, that in doing it excellently and being on time and being a person of integrity, of being someone that my coworkers can rely on. Um, you know, and being someone who doesn't, who's not going to gossip or, you know, backstab someone or be, you know, cut corners. That insofar as we can be um, people of excellence in, in a, a secular area of our life, that's somehow a part, a piece of our Christian life. Um, that we should be, you know, examples pointing to our Lord. And in and, and that excellence, you know, even if it's not explicitly telling them about Jesus, that perhaps there could be something that is, seems set apart. And that, that difference is him animating uh, through our lives in, that, in those ways. Mm-hmm. Noelle, tell me a little bit about Carrie Gress, who you wrote the book with. Are you longtime friends? Have you had your toes buried in the sand together <laughs> at the beach? <laughs> 
we did do a photo shoot at the beach for this book. But um, no, she lives in Virginia. I'm in California. So we are, do a lot on apps, Voxer, we're, we, the walkie-talkie app. You know, we're just constantly communicating throughout the day about all these projects. But um, we actually met in 1997. We went to grad school together. We we're studying philosophy. And we just knew each other for one year. But it was a, there were only three women in the philosophy grad department. And so we became fast friends. We were the philosophy girls. And we just spent so much time together. It was a really formative um, year. And then we lost touch for a while. I got married at uh, 23 and started having babies. She went off and lived all over Europe and um, got her PhD. Um, but then we reconnected and just realized that she, you know, she'd already been writing a lot of books about women and, and feminism and um, just realized that we could. there was a lot of opportunity for us to work together, and we work well together well. So we started writing the Theology of Home books, and we've also worked on this website, theologyofhome.com, that we have we do work um, maintain every day. It's got a shop and a blog and daily email and all that. So that that takes up our time too. What do you What do you think, uh, Noelle, about people that want to get married on the beach? <laughs> Uh, you know, I understand why people are drawn to do that. I don't, I don't, I would not do that myself. And yeah. I, I, I wouldn't really want my kids to do it. I, to me, it seems like that it's, um, uh, it, it's taking away from the gravity of, of the event a bit, you know, because the beach is inherently, there's a casualness to it, mm-hmm. even though it is, you know, beautiful and it's inspirational. Um, yeah, I certainly wouldn't tell, condemn someone for doing that by any means, but that would, that, that would not be my choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's been fascinating to uh, hear your um, talk about the sea and all that we've learned from the beach and the water. And do you have uh, some artifacts in your home? I bet you do. You got some seashells and other things like that in your house. Peter's got a whale. Oh, bone. We have. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was waiting for the story of how the, I, I loved how you um, did not. It was not that you actually murdered the whale <laughs> 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 on, the, on the sand. So I, I threatened it. I threatened it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, you could embellish that story a lot. Yeah. Um, no, we've got tons of trinkets from the sea, and fun. we've got the rocks and, fun, you know, just yeah. interesting yeah, shells and all sorts yeah. of stuff. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you, Noelle. It's been great. It was a lot of fun. Thanks yep, for having me. You bet. Noelle Merrick's been our guest. At the Sea is the name of a book. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I hope you have a great night, and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.